Well, have you ever looked at a kid and said, why did you do that? I don't know if you found yourself in a situation like that. Listen, if you have kids, I know at some point in your life, you have said that question, why did you do that? Now, often the response, at least what I found is this, well, I don't know, right? Like they didn't really think through why they have done what they just chose to do. Now, I wanna tell you a story. A few weeks ago, I was at, with my family, we were at a restaurant. And uh, I took my son to the bathroom, very fatherly thing to do because he's young. And we get to the point and he's washing his hands and he comes to the sink and I'm just watching him do this. And he goes up to the, to the soap dispenser and he just starts squirting, right? Like pressing the thing five, like five times, right? And this is the foaming type of soap, okay? So it starts building in his hand and his, his, his eyes just light up like it's the coolest thing in the world, right? And so it just, it just builds up into this mountain. And finally, as the father, I say, okay, that's enough, right? Just, just wash your hands, just wash your hands. Now, in this moment, he decides he wants to have a little science experiment, okay? And he takes this mound of foaming soap and he claps his hands. And when he does that, the soap just goes all over him. And, and what I decided to do is what any good father would do in that moment. First, I just started laughing at him, right? Because it was funny and he wasn't hurt, so it was just funny, right? But then second, I did what any good father would do. I, I took my phone out and I took a picture, okay? And so here's my son, Dawson, just like, you can see his face, he's just shocked, right? That that's what would have happened when he decided to do that. And so then my fatherly instincts kicked in and after I was done laughing and taking pictures of him in the bathroom, I decided you know, it was time to get cleaned up. And so I'm like figuring out how to get soap out of his hair and, and make it all look right before we go back and tell his mom what happened. But in that process, I looked at him and I'm like, why did you do that, right? Like, seriously, why? What was going through your mind when you decided to do that? And you know what he said, well, I don't know, right? I, I, don't, I don't know. I wonder how many places in your life you do things and you don't know why you do them. If you could think about that for a second, sometimes it's out of routine, sometimes it's out of maybe expectation or curiosity, maybe sometimes it's just out of ignorance. When we don't know the why, why we do things, we can lose uh, the purpose behind our actions. This is a little bit of what I wanna talk about today. I think you can all understand that. Last week, we started this series called Criticizing Jesus. It's focused on how Jesus responded to critics in his life. Oftentimes those were religious leaders, but not always, and how he uh, responded, what we can learn from that. So I wanna thank you for being in church today. It's, it's my pleasure to be up here to share with you. I wanna personally welcome anybody who's watching me on a screen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're gonna be in John chapter five. And so if you have a Bible, a Bible app, a mobile phone, something, I wanna encourage you to turn there. This will be our text for today in John chapter five. What's interesting about the gospel of John is the first four chapters of John's gospel are very much uh, centered around this idea of what Jesus is doing and the miracles that he does and that people are very interested. They're very interested in Jesus, what he's doing and what he is saying. But we get to John chapter five, things take a turn and they go from curiosity to opposition. And that's what we will see in this criticism. Now, this may feel like a text that is just uh, talks about Jesus, but actually has a lot of impl implications for us as well. So if we're gonna model ourselves, model our lives after Jesus, we have to see what he says, what he does, and what we can learn from them. And I think when we do this, I think when we, when we see what Jesus says and how he responds, it can bring some clarity into our lives about why we should do the things that we're asked 
to do. So if you have your text open, I wanna invite you to stand with me. John chapter five, it's just a few verses. We do this each and every week to honor God's read, reading the public script, reading of the public, the public reading of scripture as part of our service. I should know how to say that, but you know, here we go. John chapter five, verses 16 and 18 says this. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All right, guys, thank you so much. You could be seated. Now, that may seem like we missed quite a bit of the story, like we're jumping in uh, at the end, and that's true. Uh, we'll get to that, but I want you to see where this is going to end up as we start. Uh, what, what we read is, is kind of like the end of the story, and we're going to trail back uh, because what we see at the beginning is important. Jesus faced criticism for doing work on the Sabbath, right? That's what we see. And he felt the need, what the scripture says, he felt the need to defend himself. The Jewish people observed a seventh day, uh, at the end of the week, a seventh day uh, Shabbat is what they would call it. It's their Sabbath, right? It's the rest from their normal work or their normal employment. But over the years, the religious leaders, the, the oral tradition of the Sabbath had grown to the place where now the religious leaders expected everyone to basically not do anything, anything that was physical labor, anything that, that you had to exert any type of energy. They said, no, that's labor. And so the Pharisees, they loved to oversee this. They loved to oversee the law and, and the Sabbath and to make sure people were doing the right thing and not breaking it. It was something that they liked. And so what happens here with this criticism with Jesus, it's centered around the Sabbath, the Shabbat, but it doesn't stay there. That's not where it ends. And I wanna show you that today as we start this criticism, what we can learn from Jesus and how he responds and what it means for us today. So let's back up. Let's back up to where this whole thing starts because Jesus has entered into Jerusalem for a feast and he comes into this place that's called the Pool of Bethesda, all right? So in Aramaic, this means it, it, it's, it literally translates into the house of God's loving kindness. It was a place that was very interesting because it had some interesting thoughts about what happened here. You may be familiar with this, but uh, there was many who, who believed that this pool, the pool of Bethesda, had some supernatural powers. In fact, later manuscripts of the Bible added some notes to this text to, to help readers understand that what people believed would happen here is that the waters would be stirred, right? And then people would be healed. Whoever was the first person to enter into the water would be healed of their illness. And so, listen, how that all plays out and what that looked like and all that kind of stuff actually really isn't that important because what we're gonna see is the man who Jesus talks to believes that it's true. He believes that's what's gonna happen and he believes this is, what, this is how this plays out. And so that's what we're gonna see. He believes that if he enters into the pool, he'll be healed. And so Jesus enters into the pool of Bethesda. It looks like this today uh, in its ruins, but it, you could see it had these colonnades and um, some structures around it and the waters were on the inside. And so Jesus enters into this place and John tells us in his gospel that many lame and blind and paralyzed people would lay around this place, just waiting for the waters to stir up so they could get in. In fact, Jesus sees a man who's described as an invalid, someone who for 38 years hasn't been able to walk. And what Jesus 
sees him, when he sees him and what he says to him is important. So this is where we're gonna pick up in the story. And the first thing I want all of us to see, if you like to take notes, is this. Jesus helps those in need. It's pretty simple, but I wanna break this down for us. When you walk through parts of the story, it's really hard to ignore uh, these things the more that you see them. In fact, one of, the, uh, one of them is how Jesus sees this man. So look at it in John chapter five, verses six through nine, it says this. When Jesus saw him lying there, and learned they had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you wanna get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Now once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. It's actually an amazing miracle, right? It's one that we like, I mean, if you've been around church for long enough, you've probably heard this story. But I mean, this man hadn't walked in nearly four decades and Jesus, with his own words, heals him. But this man has known nothing different. He believes his only hope, his only hope is to be miraculously cured. In fact, you would think it's a bit ridiculous that Jesus went up to him and asked him, do you wanna get well, right? I mean, this is the reason that he's laying by the pool. It's the reason that he's there. And although the story doesn't tell us that Jesus heals everyone at the pool, he does heal this one. And that should mean something to us. It, it shows us that Jesus helps those in need. And you see that all throughout the gospels that Jesus cares for people. And here's why I say this. I want you to contrast this to the response that the Pharisees had when this happened. The, the reaction that they had when this man actually did pick up his mat and walk. Here's what happened in verse 10. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I mean, can you imagine how crazy that is, right? For, for nearly four decades, this man hasn't been able to walk. And the moment, the second that he gets up and he walks, he's scolded by the religious leaders that they're saying they're watching this. He's scolded for carrying his bed and actually using his legs. I mean, they cared more about the rules and the regulations and the traditions than they did actually about people. Well, Jesus was the other way around. Jesus cared about people more than he did the rules and the traditions. What this means for us, so we can ignore the people around us who have needs. All right, this is, this is what I want you to see. We, we cannot ignore that this man had a physical need and Jesus did not ignore it. He didn't let how things have always, how they've always been stop him from helping him, here's the problem. Many of us, not all of us, I don't wanna assume all of us, but many of us, we, let, uh, we, we tend to allow plenty of things get in the way of us helping people in need, don't we? we? We tend to let things get in the way of us helping people in need. This plays out in a lot of ways. For me, I think personally, it's like my own convenience. My own convenience oftentimes prevents me from helping people in need. I remember a story when I was younger. I think uh, my wife and I were in college, we were dating and we had went out to dinner. And after we left dinner, we were walking to our car and uh, it's, it was starting to like precipitate a little bit. And um, we, were, we were going to the car and I saw this guy and it was clear he was, he was having car problems. Like he needed a jump or something like that. And, and, and we get to the car. Well, here's, I'm gonna be vulnerable for a minute and I'm gonna tell you a story. It's not like really flattering for me, okay? But I remember this and so I, I need to tell you. So I get in the car. Here's the problem with this parking lot. There's only one way out, all right? And so I got to drive by this guy. And I think actually he's like waving me down, like, hey, you know, can you help me? And I remember saying this, I am not getting out in the rain and helping that guy. I don't think my wife was very impressed by that, right? And, and, I, 
And the reason I tell you that is because I let my own convenience of what I wanted, how I wanted the rest of my night to go, prevent me from helping someone who had a clear physical need right in front of me. Why do I remember this all those years later? Because I knew I was wrong in that moment. I knew I was wrong. Do you do this in your life? Do you find yourself like, uh, do you help people whether, they're in, whether uh, it's something that's required of you or not? Do you help people whether it costs you something or not? Do you help whether you can post it on social media for other people to see or not? This is what we have to wrestle with. You see, whether you're a Christian or you actually haven't been around church very much at all, you're probably familiar with the term Good Samaritan, right? We know this term. We know that this comes from a parable that Jesus told. And Jesus tells this story about um, a man who had been beaten up and, and robbed and he's left basically half dead on the side of the road. And he tells this story to illustrate a point. And what he's saying is that there is a priest and a Levite who walked by two religious people, right? That we would expect, man, they had their life together. They would help somebody who has a clear physical need. But Jesus tells the story and says, these guys, when they saw him, they crossed on the other side of the road and walked by and didn't help. And then he tells the story about the Samaritan. And the Samaritan uh, we know it was someone that, that Jews who Jesus was telling the story to actually didn't feel any social pressure to help. Like they were, they were a different type of people. We don't really need to talk to them, help them, whatever it was. But in his story, the Samaritan was the one who used his own money, who used his own time, used his own resources to help this person. And what he's showing us is whether it costs us something or not, we need to be people who see people's physical needs and help them. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. If you've been around Mount Pleasant for a while, you're probably familiar with this word pity because we've talked about it. In the Greek, it's this word, splagnizomai. You should probably say that with me, splagnizomai, right? Remember that because what this word means is to be moved in the inward parts, to feel Compassion. You see, when I, was in my, when I was in my car and I saw this man who needed help, I lacked the necessary splagnizomai inside of me to do anything and to help him, right? But here's the beautiful thing. This is what Jesus is filled with when he sees people with need. He's filled with this. He's filled with compassion. And it propelled him to help those around him who had a need. And the more that we live our lives like Jesus, the more that we fill ourselves with his spirit, with, with him inside of us, the more that we will become this as well, people filled with compassion to help others in need. Here's a verse that maybe doesn't get a whole lot of attention, but I think it's important. James, which is Jesus' brother, tells us this. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Sometimes we know what we're supposed to do, but we, we, we let our own... Uh, um, convenience or other things step in the way and prevent us from helping people in need. And so maybe you ought to be looking for people with physical needs and how you can help them. You know, I love the thing that we did a few weeks ago with the food packing. A lot of you guys were probably involved with that. That was a real tangible and physical way to help somebody uh, who has the needs by sending food to, to people who need it. Well, there's also ways that our church gives you opportunity to do that as well. We have what we call our impact sites and our impact center. One of the things that I really like to do is I serve at the impact center once a month and I go and I just, whatever they tell me to do, I do. But you know, one of the things I like to do is just talk to people and say hi to them and get to know them. And the more that you're there, the more that you kind of create relationships and friendships and, and you're able to, to check in on their lives and things like that. And so it's really nice because the face-to-face, -face, it's a coupling of helping someone with a physical need but also we help them with their spiritual need as well. So it's really the best of 
both worlds. And I, I tell you that because I think that if we were to put this point, Jesus helps people in need, maybe we should too. We have it for you already. We have an opportunity for you to help already. And if that's something that maybe you just need a little bit of nudge or a reminder that actually here on our campus, we have a place for you to go and to help people with their physical needs. Because listen, they need more help. They need more people to be involved. And maybe you just need a little bit of nudge to get you there. And so I wanna put this up on the, state, uh, on the screen here for you. Uh, just an easy way for you to get involved. If you just text the word impact to this number, uh, all that is gonna do is send you this, this link right here. But I'm just gonna encourage you to go and to find those leaders of our impact sites, uh, all of our locations, because we are involved in things across this city, uh, helping people with physical needs. And we want our church, we want you to be a part of that. So please do that, email those people, ask how you get involved, tell them you listened to a great sermon and Matt told you to, because you know I get I, we have like this referral program, right? And so you know, if you tell them I sent you, it's really gonna help me out. I'm just kidding. But just a suggestion, really. I mean, Jesus helps those in need, and I think that we should do the same. So this story is actually filled with a lot of good things for us to understand. So here's the second takeaway I want you to see. Jesus loves those who are far from him. He loves people who are far from him. One of the most fascinating things about this story is that this man actually is clueless to who Jesus is. He, he really is clueless. I mean, Jesus, he sees him, he identifies him, he walks up to him, he's ready to heal him. He asks him if he wants to get well, and this is his response, sir. I've got no one to help me into the pool and the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He doesn't even recognize that the man in front of him is the one who is able to heal him. And here's what else we see in the story, because I think it's interesting um, what we can learn from this man, because it doesn't appear that this healing that he receives radically changes his life spiritually. In fact, uh, when the religious leaders scolded him for picking up his mat and walking, this is what he said in verse 11. He says, he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He, he was looking for Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus has left. He's kind of walked off. And he, he's looking, he's trying to point the blame to Jesus. The reason I broke the Sabbath is that guy. Like, where did he go? That, he told me to do it. More than that, the story continues a few verses later in verse 14. It says this, later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man, he went away and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, this seems to suggest a couple of things to us. Number one, the man was healed physically, but it didn't result in like immediate gratitude or repentance because Jesus uh, had to remind him to stop sinning. And there's more that we could say and talk about that, but that's really not for our time right now. But second, the man, he goes and tattles to the Pharisees, <laughs> it was Jesus who told him to do, who healed him. And so you get this sense that he was far from God. There are a lot of people, many that John records were at the pool. And Jesus saw this one and he decided to heal him. Why? Because he loves people who are far from God. This is the hardest truth that the Pharisees had to accept in Jesus's way of living. He loved people who are far from God. Now, let me tell you why this is significant, why it's so important for us to see, because there are a lot of people in this world who are just like this man. They are just like him. This man tried to heal himself. He did, but he couldn't. I mean, he basically lives at the pool He's waiting for the waters to stir so he can get in because that is hope for healing, right? 
That's what he says. He, he's tried. He's tried to be the first one in. He's tried to fix himself. He's tried to heal himself. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that he hasn't tried really hard. It's just that he can't do it. He can't do it himself. He even recognizes at this point, 38 years later, he says, I have no one to help me. He, he says, I need help. And for some of you, or maybe people that you know, you've tried to fix things in your life. You've tried. Maybe you've got a marriage that's kind of crumbling and you've tried over and over. you tried different things to get it on track, but you just can't. Or, or maybe you have an addiction to something and over and over and over again, you've tried to rid yourself of this in your life, but you just can't do it. Or maybe you have bitterness stored up in your heart from something that happened or at someone and you don't know how to get it out of your life. You tried things. We all try. We all try to fix ourselves, but at some point you will come to this truth is that Jesus is the only one who heals us of these things. He's the only one who heals us of these. All these examples are ramifications of sin. All of them. The only one who can help us with sin is Jesus. And the sooner that we recognize that, the better off we are. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, we can find healing for all the things that we need in his life. And when we start to recognize that in the sin, not only just in the sin in our lives, but in all things, we begin to look to him as the true source of our healing. You know, I like to imagine that this man probably when Jesus is speaking to him, he still has his eyes on the waters, waiting for it to be stirred. As he's probably talking to Jesus, wondering, you know, yeah, you want to help me, but I, I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting to see if I can get in there, if I can fix this myself. Not knowing that Jesus is actually there to help him. I wonder if we begin to look to Christ for all the things in our life that we need fixing, all the things that we need healed, all the things that are broken, instead of fixing it ourselves. If we turn to him, Peter, one of the closest people to Jesus reminded us this, give all your worries and your cares to God for he cares about you. Let's be reminded of that. Jesus is standing next to you asking, do you wanna get well? Do you wanna get well? Maybe that's a truth that you need to hear and that you need to feel today. Cause I'm not sure where you're at with your relationship with God or how close you feel to him. But one thing that I do know is that Jesus loves people who are far from him. He does. Maybe you need to be reminded of that. Maybe that's a truth that you need to be reminded of personally or for someone that's close to you in your life that you can continue to have spiritual influence in their life. Remembering that Jesus loves them. Maybe in our lives, we need to extend the love of Christ to people who are far from God. I wanna tell you that our high school students this year have um, in their small groups have all visited our Fairfax church and in, in, the, in the neighborhood and they've participated in the community meal that happens on Wednesday nights. And in this semester, all of our groups have put together these care packages filled with goodies and um, scriptures and, and prayer notes. And they just took this big bag and it was actually identified for a specific family or person in the neighborhood. Here's one of our, our uh, groups that did this. And uh, this is a picture they took with the individual that they went and visited, there's actually a really, really cool story behind this picture. Maybe at some point we'll tell you that. But the reason I tell you this is because it, it meant a lot to this guy that this group showed up and gave him a gift and prayed with him. It was a small, simple step to extend the love of Jesus to someone who may be far from God. And if those girls can do it, you can do it. You can find a way to do this in your life. You just need to be willing to see people a little bit more like Jesus did.
He loves people who are far from God. And when we begin to do the same thing, we'll begin to see people coming closer to God. But here's where the story takes a turn, okay? Up to this point, the conversation has centered around uh, the man and the Pharisees, and then um, the man with Jesus. And so that's what it's looked like. But the criticism and the conflict are going to pick up because now the Pharisees are going to approach Jesus with their criticism. We read this verse earlier, but look at it again, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And so here's where we find ourselves. The criticism is this. You can't heal on the Sabbath, all right? That's what it boiled down to for the, for the Pharisees, for these religious leaders, as they looked at Jesus as what he was doing, the criticism that they look at him and says, you can't do that, Jesus. You cannot heal on the Sabbath. And like I said, the Pharisees very much wanted to guard this. They wanted to guard their perception of law. And not only did they scold the man for, for carrying his mat, but they criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, like he actually had to do anything to heal him. I mean, he just spoke some words, but here's how it unfolds again in verse 17 and 18. So in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. And so for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I need you to pay attention for a second. This moment, these words are very significant, very important for us. Jesus could have used this moment to set them straight on their misunderstanding or their misinterpretation of the Sabbath, right? I mean, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing, not a burden. Uh, it, it, the Sabbath was not made for man, or, but man for the Sabbath, right? And so how Jesus responds here is actually really important. So the response is this, God is always at work as am I. So what's that mean? We need to understand Jesus's logic here. Follow this. He's not saying that because God works on the Sabbath, everyone can work on the Sabbath. What he's saying is that because God works on the Sabbath, he can. And that's a big difference. He's saying, he's saying that the factors that apply to God also apply to him. And after this, the criticism turns violent because they see Jesus as a threat. And not only did he heal on the Sabbath, but he begins e equating himself with God. So that leads us to our last idea, that Jesus embraces identity. This is really important for us. If you ever have a conversation with someone who uh, thinks that Jesus was a good man or a good teacher, but he actually never claimed to be anything more than that, or he claimed to be God, point him to this. Because what Jesus says he, he claims to be on par with the Father. What Jesus does here is he elevates himself to equality with God, and the Jews knew it. And because they knew that, they wanted him dead for it. They begin to persecute him. They begin to plot ways to kill him because of what he says. But he didn't run from his identity. He embraced it. And because he embraced his identity, it changed the way that he lived. It changed the way that he treated people. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Right? This is one of the most perplexing things to try to understand in the scriptures, but it's true. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says this, For in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And what that means is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. You could try to wrap your mind around it. It's a little complicated to understand, but it's the truth that we wrestle with. Jesus was God in the flesh. 
And when you read this story and how Jesus saw this man and how he healed this man, and he did it all the while knowing that this man was pretty far from God, it makes you wonder what that means for us, what it means for how we live, what it means for how he, what he expects of us. One of my favorite verses that you're probably familiar with is Philippians chapter two, verses six through eight. Talking about Jesus says this, who being in the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, Jesus embraced his identity and that identity ultimately led to him dying a sacrificial death on behalf of all people. That is who he was, that is who he is, that is what he did. But the thing that I want you to consider is this, because this is how you apply this to yourself. How does your identity affect the way that you live? Because you do have an identity. I hope you know that. Uh, Here's some things that scripture tells us about who we are. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. See how very much our father loves us for he calls us his children. That is what we are. Do you see what I want you to see? He calls you his child. He calls us his children. That is your identity and that is significant. Here's why. Listen, I've got a lot of nieces and, well, not a lot, but I've got a couple of nieces and nephews. But I also have my own kids. How I feel about my nieces and nephews is different than how I feel about my kids. You know, how that, you know what that's like, right? How I feel about them, I love them, but how I feel about those kids is different than how I feel about my kids. Listen, I know that my kids aren't perfect. I know that they make mistakes. Their teachers tell me about it. I mean, for crying out loud, they splash soap all over their face and make messes, right? They're not the smartest. They're not the fastest. They don't have it all together. But you know what? They're my kids. They're my kids. And I don't care that they're not perfect. I don't care that they don't have it all together. They're mine. And I love them. And I would do anything for them. I would do anything that they need. I would give my life to protect them or to save them because they're mine. And that is an earthly example of how God feels about you. He calls you his child. And that means something important and significant for us when you embrace this and you remember this, that your identity as a child of God, it will change the way that you live, I promise you. It will change the way that you treat people It'll change the way that you interact. It'll change the way that you think. How Jesus responded to these critics helps us to realize something that that is really important. He embraced who he said he was and it affected how he interacted with the people in the world around him because Jesus embraced who he was. When you embrace who you are, who God says that you are, it will change the way that you live and it will change the way that you see people and treat people. So why do you do what you do? Let's go back to the beginning. Why do, you, why do you do the things that you do? Simon Sinek wrote a book that was called Start With Why, and he said this, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And what you do simply proves what you believe. Why you do what you do should be rooted in your identity, that you are a child of God. You are 
who he says you are and what he has done by setting you free from sin changes us. Our response to his love and to his grace should be the driving forces in our life of how we treat other people. This is what I want you to see, is this. Jesus knew who he was and it fueled his actions. When you know who you are, your mission becomes clarified. This is about identity. We are to love and to care for all people just as Jesus did when he walked this earth. And here's what I think. If we did this, follow me for a second. If we all did this, if we all just grabbed this idea, grabbed our identity and who God says we are and started allowing that to change the way that we live. If we did this, I mean, if we loved people and cared about people regardless of their religion or their politics or their ethnicity, I mean, I think our world wouldn't know what to do. Christians would be so different than everybody else around them because we're living out the things that Jesus has called us to do. I want you to consider what it looks like for you to embrace your identity as a child of God and, and to love people like Jesus did. Maybe just start with one person. I want you to pray with me. Father, we love you so much and we are so thankful for Jesus and all that he's done for us. And we are reminded as we look through this story of how he responded to these Pharisees and what he did for this man and what it means for us, Lord, that if we walk in your steps, if we live as what you have called us to live, that we would be different than who we are today. So I'm praying, Lord, I'm asking that you would help us to embrace who you say that we are that we are your kids and that you love us with everything that you are. And in response to that love, our lives are different. Help us to feel that truth. Help us to believe that. Help us to embrace who we are. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a response song and we don't always do this, haven't done this in a while, but we're gonna have our prayer counselors that are gonna be down here during this song. Now I wanna invite you just to come down here if you'd like for someone to pray with you about something. Maybe you wanna respond to the, to the, to the message, to, to the gospel, to, to God's love, or maybe you have someone in your life that you know that you need to be serving or, or caring for or leading to a relationship with Christ and you just want someone to pray with you. That's gonna happen during this song. So I invite you to take advantage of that as we sing.